0: Coming back to the series that we're in, over a a number of weeks, we've been journeying through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we've been alongside the Israelites, God's people, as they've worked up from the rubble. There's now a temple, a city, and a wall completed, and they've come through the doubt and the opposition to a time of of taking hold and, and moving in. Right now we're going to cover Ezra chapters 8, 9 and 10 and Nehemiah chapters 8, 9 and 10. We're not worrying about the order of the events and certainly now with this we're going to pull out the the headlines from these chapters, the flashpoints that speak to us now. Just talking to the team earlier I said it's going to be fast and furious and they laughed at that for some reason. Seemingly I'm not able to do fast and furious. (laughs) They know me too well. These chapters are all about taking hold, about the Israelites moving in and occupying the city and the temple. They're asking the question, who are they now? And what kind of people are they going to be in the future? As they live their lives in the city, in the temple, as they dwell there, as they inhabit that space. And these questions are totally relevant to us. On the verge of the, the third place, we've got to know who we are who we are as a people, who we are as a a church, and we've got to know who we're going to become in the future as we go on this adventure, as we move in, as we start to occupy and inhabit that space. And I want to start by telling you something about myself, if you don't know already. I'm a, a cautious person. I don't rush in. I check out a situation first. I analyse the opposition. I I look at the positives and the the negatives before I commit myself and throw my hand in. And it was funny. It was funny. Two weeks ago, going to Emily's, my daughter's school, our our first parents meet up with the teacher. It was like a, a watershed for me. Suddenly, it wasn't my parents who were coming back from school with worried looks on their faces, but me. Me as a, a parent talking to the teacher, trying to sound like I knew what I was talking about. And what was great about it, what was great is that I recognised Emily. Not just her photo, but the the child that's a grower, isn't it, that one? But the, the child that the teacher was describing. The teacher was saying that Emily is quiet. She's very cautious. She takes time to observe what's going on and then she gets involved. And I wonder where she gets that from. Like father, like daughter, family traits coming down. And in recent years, in recent years, I've tried to step outside of that, to get out of my comfort zone because I've learned some things about God. I've learned that often God is bold. God is brave. At times in the Bible, God is portrayed as a, a warrior. A risk taker, a conflict maker, a nation shaker. And the first headline from the book of Ezra comes as Ezra is leading his group of exiles back to Jerusalem. It was a 900 mile journey through difficult and, and dangerous territory. And in Ezra 8 verses 22 to 23, it says this. It says, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road because we had told the king... The gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this. And he answered our prayer. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Ezra thinking, bother? There I go again, shooting my mouth off in front of the king. I could have had soldiers for this. I could have had horsemen for this. All this stress and all this anxiety that I'm now feeling. There was no need for this. But sometimes... Sometimes as history makers, you say the bold statements first because you're desperate to live up to them. The gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. And sometimes as history makers, you pray the the brave prayers first because you're fighting for the faith to believe for it. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. We've heard for a a number of years the vision, the the bold statements about the third place. And as you've just heard now, a number of the leaders have met. And we've been desperate to to live up to those bold statements, to give sacrificially. And we've prayed brave prayers. And we fought because we wanted to, to lead in this. We fought for the faith to believe for it. And God is bold. God is brave. God answers prayers. Do you know one of the things, one of the things that I'm excited about? It's an auditorium with 800 seats and that's 500 extra seats to fill. 500 people in house Owen that are going to get saved. And they're going to come in and they're going to fill this place. And that's another bold statement. and Bold statements and brave prayers. And what Jesus is talking about when he says in Matthew 5, when he says about us being the light of the world. He says that a city... On a hill cannot be hidden. He says that no one lights a lamp and and puts it under a bowl. Lights go on, stands, and they give light to everyone. Our light has got to shine before people so they can see who we are and and what we do. Bold statements and brave prayers. And God gets all the praise. God gets all all the credit for that. Our church shines. Our church shines. It is a a city on a hill. It is a a lamp on a stand. And it's our lives, the people that dwell in it. It's our lives that make it shine. We do the good works. We cause people, not yet Christians, to come in and, and fill the empty seats now. And it's us who will be responsible for filling those 500 extra seats in the future as we tell people about Christ. It's bold statements and brave prayers. That keeps us going and keeps us growing. It's bold statements and brave prayers that will take us into the future. Another headline in the book of Ezra comes in chapter 9. And I I love this moment, it's an incredible moment. For anyone that's into leadership, the personal connection that Ezra gets with the, the people here is inspiring. Ezra and the Israelites are back. And things aren't what they should be, there's a problem. The issue here is intermarriage, marrying outside of God's chosen people and mixing up their religious practices with the surrounding nations. It seems obscure, but it speaks to us now because it's about identifying with a problem, making it personal. In Ezra 10 verse 1, it says this, While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered round him. They too wept bitterly. Let's be honest, this show of emotion, it isn't British, is it? Weeping, throwing himself down. Even now I'm thinking, stiff upper lip, Ezra. Where's the reserve here? And you can imagine, you can imagine the hushed conversation among the people witnessing this scene. Talking and saying, what's going on here? What's Ezra getting all emotional about? Because personally, personally it wasn't Ezra's problem. He was the priest, he was pure, he was set apart and it's incredible. It's incredible that Ezra is willing to make their problem, to make the people's problem his problem. To make it his cause, to make it his vision. And the people respond to that. They gather around him and suddenly they feel the weight of it. They realise the damage that they've done to themselves. And this is what Ezra... This is what Nehemiah, this is what all great leaders, all history makers, this is what they do. They identify with a problem. They identify with the problem that the people are facing. And they make it personal. For us here at this church, Food Bank is a a great example of that. A couple of weeks ago I was with Simon Woodward in the coffee shop and we were talking about the future. Where God is giving us opportunities. We agreed that it was working with adults from difficult backgrounds, maybe in trouble with drugs or, or crime. We hadn't finished the conversation when Anne Danks walks in. There were two men with her, and we were introduced. The two men were fine with us pulling over our chairs and, and talking. They fitted our description. And Simon, Simon Woodward, he he shone in that, that conversation. I was there thinking, man. Man, just be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you pray for. Because it may just walk through the door. We have so many incredible opportunities now. And we're going to have so many more incredible opportunities in the coming years. To identify with people. With the problems that they're facing. And it's not a time for us to stand back. We've got to make it personal to ourselves. We've got to make it our cause, our vision, our chance to, to shine. Continuing to be that city on a hill, that lamp on a stand. To be that good news in Hal Zohan. We're finished. We're in Ezra now. And moving into Nehemiah. The city, the temple and the wall is complete. The mourning and the weeping are over. And halfway through Nehemiah chapter 8, halfway through there's a, a party going on. Everyone loves a party. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. As a church, and we've just done it now, as a church we've got to know when. And how to celebrate. I'm reading about Ranulph Fiennes at the moment. Anyone heard of Ranulph Fiennes? Well, he's not that popular here then. <laughs> I'm reading his autobiography. It's called Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know. It's great. But I mean, what a head case. What a head case. The Arctic, the Antarctic, constantly dark, minus 40 and below, man hauling sledges for days and, and for months, frostbite, polar bears, Gangrene plunging into the sea. There isn't much, there really isn't much to look forward to during a polar expedition. But even finds, even finds sets himself a target. He looks forward to it, he celebrates it at the end of the day's efforts. What is it? What's this target? What's this celebration? A cup of tea. Now we're talking. That's British. That's reserve, facing all those dangers and finishing the day with a brew. And we've got to set ourselves, we've got to set ourselves targets and we've got to celebrate them. We can sing, we can dance, we can throw our arms around or we can have a cup of tea and celebrate on the inside. (laughs) So long as it's a show of strength. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's something else here, something subtle but important Nehemiah, he tells the people to send choice food and sweet drinks to those who have nothing prepared. We're people. We're people that live with overflow. Overflow from what God's doing in our lives personally. Overflow from what God's doing in our church corporately. Overflow of our food, overflow of our drinks, overflow of our money and our faith, overflow of our our joy, overflow from our families, overflow of a sense of God's power and God's presence. Overflow to the community of Halzine. They benefit from us being here. They may not know it, they probably don't care about it, but they'd miss it. They'd miss it if it was gone. We're people that live with Overflow. Our lives, our church being so filled that it spills over. The spirit living and moving in house, Owen. And we've missed it. We've missed it if we only remain in here. We're all pastors. We're all ministers in our streets. We're pastors and ministers in the playground, in our colleges, in our places of work. What we are in here needs to be overflowing out there. Coming back to the Bible back to the Bible, if you want the Old Testament in a, in a nutshell, this is it, in Nehemiah chapter 9. It starts in verse 5 and goes through to verse 37. We get the history of the Israelites, God's people, and I think it is important. It's important that we know how to handle our history, that we remember it, that we respect it, that we learn from it, but that we also live in the now moment. See, there's a danger that we can be living in the past the days when Billy Graham could save thousands in his stadium crusades if only you could get someone to pitch up there's a good chance they'd become a Christian then there's a the danger that we can be living in the the future waiting for the revival the next big thing looking back and I know it's a, a position of advantage it was incredible the reaction to Todd Bentley with the the Lakeland revival and I think it showed something Showed a a desperation for this to be it, the future now. For an end time revival, the second coming. But maybe caught up in that desperation was the chance of a quick fix. Of bypassing the hard work of doing church. Of continuing to meet together. Of serving and sacrificing together. I don't know, I'm just asking the question. But I do know, I do know that God has placed us here at this time in this generation, in this church. And we don't choose the time. The time chooses us. And maybe it's like hide and seek with God. And when God's finished counting, he shouts 99, 100, coming ready or not. Are we ready now? We've got to be people that remember and respect our past. We've got to be people that have a secure hope for the future, that Christ is to come. But we've also got to be living in the present, in the now moment, doing the hard work of church, serving, sacrificing and meeting together. If we now read Nehemiah 9 from verse 5, it will show us what's going on here. It says, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the season, all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. And what we get there is creation, the opening of of Genesis. And it goes on running through the events of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It goes on telling the story of God's people. And what's remarkable about this review of Israelite history is the use of the words you and your. Again and again, it gets repetitive like a rap. And maybe the writer is trying to make a point here. In that one chapter, the words you or your are used 88 times. And the point is, the point is God is in charge. You God, your God, all the way through. It's God's glory, God's blessing, God's call. It's God's plan, God's promise, God's compassion, God's honour, God's glory. It is God who is offended, who is disgraced, refused and rejected, good or bad. God is there, past or future or in the now. It is God. God is in control. And if we want to know who we are and who we are becoming, then we connect our history with God. And our history goes like this started in a lounge in 1979 with 14 people. God was there. You, God, gave the call. God, it was your desire to have a a Pentecostal church in Zone. You caused us to grow. You made it possible. And in 1981, you, God, moved the church into the old Zion Methodist chapel. It was you that took 23 people over the, the next five years. With your explosive growth up to 200 people, it was you, God, in 1986 that moved us into this building. It was you, it was your desire. When God's people review their history, it should be like a stick of rock. Wherever you break it, God's name runs through the center. And we will continue to be, as a church, people who are centered on God. Centered on God. Have you ever had that thought? Have you ever had that thought when you've looked back at your life? If I knew then, What I knew now, then I would have said something or or done something differently. Looking back on something gives us perspective. It gives us clarity. And I wonder what it will be like looking back on the third place. When it's finished and we're occupying that space. I mean, who here has been involved in a a multi-million pound building project? I think there probably is one or two people here who've experienced that. But I haven't. And sometimes I struggle to know what it should look like and feel like and sound like. And I can only go off what I already know about God and his church and this church, Zion Christian Centre. I've been around this place for 20 plus years now. And Zion seems to live life on the edge of what's going on. It hasn't made things easy. It hasn't been a, a comfortable Christian experience. But Jesus never promised comfort He promised adventure. And what we're going to learn, what we're going to learn about ourselves, good or bad, and what we're going to learn about each other, good or bad, what we're going to learn about God through the coming years will be limitless. It will cause us to expand, both personally and corporately as a church. And expansion, expansion shows up the pressure points. We're going to have to work things out as we go. It isn't going to be delivered in one easy package. As people, we will laugh together, we will cry together, we'll worship and celebrate together. Life will continue. We may even get frustrated with each other. We'll have to deal with our differences because of the the bigger work of God. As a church, we'll be pushing into new areas, partnering with new people, new organizations, schools, colleges, police, public health care. We'll be expanding, growing larger in God. And we're going to need grace. And we're going to need patience. We're going to need to have perspective and humility towards each other as those pressure points start to show. We're getting closer to the finish now. Having occupied the city and the temple. Having read the law and having reviewed their history. After the weeping, after the the celebration The people are moved to make a decision, to sign up to their future following God. In Nehemiah 9 verse 38 it says, In view of all this we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing and our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Sometimes, sometimes it's essential that we agree and that we see that agreement down in writing. Just through looking at the shifts in culture, I think that my generation, my generation, the generations that are are coming through, I think that we don't really like commitment. We prefer to leave it open. We don't want to cut down our options too soon. And commitment, commitment for the the long haul, I think is now counter-cultural. It goes against the way we're wired up. But if we're going to experience the the fullness of God, if we're going to see God impacting our lives, if we're going to see God impacting the lives and the community around us, if we're going to expand, then that's the commitment that we're going to need. Commitment for the long haul. So often God seems to take us the the long way around because he's, he's more interested in what he can do in us, testing, challenging, refining our character, than us feeling like we've reached the finish. And what the people do here, is to get their leaders, the Levites and their priests, to fix their seals to it, to hold them to it. They wanted to follow through on this agreement. And they knew that there would be times, times in the the future when they would waver, when their faith would falter. But When you've made an agreement like that, you can look back and you can say, we agreed, I signed up to this, we built this together. It's a bold statement. It's a, a line on the ground. It's a, a peg in the sand. And, and an agreement like that, an agreement like that bonds people together. It unites them. It's commitment for the long haul. Going back, going back to when I was growing up. I started out in a different church to this. It was Hasbury Christian Fellowship. Some of you will know it well. And When I was there, there was a name on a plaque on a table at the front of the church. You may think that doesn't sound very inspiring. And for you, maybe it won't be. But for me, it was. The name was James Basterfield. It's a family name on my mom's side. And Jim, as he was called, was my great granddad. And alongside some others, alongside some other, he founded that church. They had a vision and they led a group of people. I was probably 10 years old when I first read it. And it didn't mean much at the time. But now looking back, it means much more. I think about Emily and Jay, my two children, as they come through. You know, we're all parents. We're all spiritual parents responsible for the generations that follow us. And this sounds emotive and it's meant to be because it it moves me. One day Emily and Jay will grow up. One day the, the generations that follow us are going to grow up and they're going to come back to us. They're going to look at us. And the question that's going to be going through their minds, even if they don't say it, the question will be, so then dad, so then mom, so then parents and leaders, so then church, what did you do with your faith? What are you leaving for us to inherit? And you know, I'm worried about that question because I see mosques going up everywhere. I see outrageous things in the news. Crimes, injustice, poverty. And at my most negative, I really don't see much good. I don't see much of God that Emily and Jay, that our spiritual children are going to inherit. And thinking about that plaque now with my great-granddad's name on it, I could sit back and say, that's my great-granddad. What a man he, he must have been. And I can leave it there. Or I can say that he led in his generation, or we need to lead in our generation. It's our responsibility now. We've got to leave a legacy behind. It's not about a name on a plaque on a table at the front of church. It's about faith in God, faith in God, living on in the hearts and in in the lives of the generations that follow us and speaking, speaking to the, the generations that are following us. Don't let your lives, don't let your relationship with God be limited by us. We'll build the third place. But it's my prayer, it's my hope, and it's my belief that you'll want to do something even bolder, something even braver with your lives. The last words from Nehemiah chapter 10 are these. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. And that could become our mantra, our repeating phrase for the next five years, for the future. This is who we are. This is who we are becoming. Making bold statements and praying brave prayers. Identifying with a vision. Living with overflow in our lives. Living in the now moment. Being centred on God like a stick of rock. His name runs through us. His name runs through this church. And we're going to be expanding. And we're going to be committed for the long haul. And a legacy, that's what we want to leave behind. The theory sounds great, but the practice, the practice requires us to make a decision. And I want to be someone who goes further, not neglecting, but excelling in the building of the house of God.